You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 33 through 42. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in the cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray now that you would indeed be our vision, that you would, on the one hand, help us to see, that you would help uh, our vision be clear, but even more than that, our vision might be fixed upon Christ the author and perfecter of our faith. So help us to see him now more clearly tonight. Through this book of Exodus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Hear these updates from around the world. Uh, It's summertime. There's several of you, even some that I've met this evening, that are just here for the summer doing trainings. Uh, You're traveling a bit. Uh, Summer is a time for road trips, and even before the time of in-car or in-minivan DVD players, I loved road trips as a kid. Uh, I remember when I was probably like a first grader, my family was getting ready to go to this place called the Arbuckle Wilderness. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Not one of you. Uh, It's one of those weird places. Uh, It's it's a place in Oklahoma. It's not weird because it's in Oklahoma. Shannon knows. Uh, It's like one of those like drive-through zoo things where you buy like a bucket of dog food and the giraffe will like stick its head in your window and eat out of your, no? Okay. Uh, Anyway, I was super excited about it. I I remember waking up at like 2.30 the morning uh, before we were supposed to leave, like the middle of the night and like getting dressed, brushing my teeth and going in and waking up my parents and say, like, we're burning daylight. And they're like, it's the middle of the night. Go back to bed. Uh, But it was was a road trip. It was something to do and somewhere to go. And so I was so excited about it. In college, nearly all of my minuscule disposable income went to road trips. Road trips for uh, college football and college basketball games, concerts and the like. Uh, My junior year, a buddy and I drove to Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, to go to just a random game in the middle of Texas's bye week. Uh, We were journalism majors, so we emailed the editor of the Tennessee student newspaper to see if we could crash on his couch, and he was super excited about that at first, and then when we got to Knoxville, he ghosted us, and we had no idea where his apartment was, and so we were very upset 
on a, in a Walgreens in the Strip in Knoxville, Tennessee, with no money to buy a last-minute hotel room. And uh, we found the, the student newspaper, a uh, little bin, and found the back page with his column on it, with his picture. We're like, here's the guy who stood us up with the, a lack of Tennessee hospitality, I guess. Sorry, we got some volunteers in here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but some guy behind us with Tennessee hospitality, he was like, what's going on? What's going on? And we told him the story. He was like, I got a firehouse subs right next door. You want to sleep on the floor there? We were like, yes. And he gave us a fountain drink cup, locked us in while Vanilla Ice was playing across the street, peeling our ears for if there is a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook when my DJ revolves it. Uh, but it's true for most folks. Uh, road trips, for me anyway, are always more fun and the drive is more fun and goes more quickly on the way there, right, than on the way back. The destination is before you, uh, whatever it is, a football game or a Disney World or wherever you're going lies before you, uh, but then after you've done it and you are driving back home, what awaits you? The return to school, the return to work, the return to just the everyday grind of life. Well, here in Exodus, it's the morning of the road trip. We've been walking our way through this book, and here it is. They're, the bags are getting packed. They're getting tossed in the back of the minivan. Snacks and drinks are being thrown into the cooler, and they really don't know what is happening, where they're going, or when they'll get there, but all the people of Israel know is that for the first time in their lives and their father's lives and their grandfather's lives is that their state of being will not be in Egypt. If you're new to Christ Church, we've spent the past two months or so working our way through the Exodus story. Uh, last week, we got to the 10th and final plague of death and of Passover. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to open to chapter 12. Follow along with us tonight. If you're new to the Bible, uh, you can grab one of the, the Bibles in front of you there in the pew in front of you. The translation will be a little different than the English Standard Version, the ESV that we use. But if you don't have a Bible, we'd also, on your way out, invite you to take one of those black Bibles over there on the table just to have as your own to read through. So Exodus is the second book of the Bible. You can find it uh, there, and we're about halfway through chapter 12. We're going to think through this second half of chapter 12, and then through most of chapter 13, under two road trip headings tonight, just of the first of packing the bags and then leaving town. So first of all, as you've heard Eric read in, first, in verse 33, they are packing the bags. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened and their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. So the Egyptians are done with the Israelites being in their land. It's not just Pharaoh, who we saw last week, wanted Israel to just get out, but all of Egypt now wants them out. The sin of enslaving God's people, of putting themselves in opposition to God himself, has brought plague and judgment on them, and they have had enough. This doesn't necessarily mean repentance, they just want Israel and their God, perhaps, to go away. And so Israel has to get ready for the road trip of their lives. And indeed, it's like getting ready last minute on the morning of. Or perhaps even more than just a road trip, it's like they have to sell their house and pack up all of their belongings in like a couple of hours and get out. So the morning bread that they were making, they hadn't even had time at that point to leaven it, to work in the yeast so that when the bread was baked or when the dough was break, baked, it would rise. So they just grabbed the dough, they grabbed the bowls and anything else they could grab, and they just threw it on their shoulders. And yet, 
they aren't, they aren't leaving Egypt as downtrodden refugees. They aren't sneaking out the back door. Because of the favor that God had given to his people in showing his utter power over the Egyptian gods, they leave as victors right out through the front door. In fact, almost like a victory parade. They leave with the wealth of all of the kingdom of Egypt. And yet, as we'll see in a few chapters, that same wealth that God gives to his people as a gift from the people of Egypt, so quickly these people will use that same wealth to turn into idols. It's a discouraging story in many ways, and one which makes us long for a better one. But God has redeemed the people, and now it's time to go. There are about 600,000 men on foot, along with women and children. Now, one, just one quick minute on a seeming problem. This would likely put the company of Israel who are leaving Egypt in the ballpark of around 2 million people. Now, while ancient archaeology, especially in the wilderness, is never easy, and just because something hasn't yet been found doesn't mean that it will never be found, uh, this number of people has long been a problem for archaeologists. The, this would have been the largest migration of people in human history, or one of them. They would have likely left considerable and conspicuous evidence of their pilgrimage across the wilderness, which to this point has not been found. So what? What do we do with this? Unlike many throughout history who have said that this is either hyperbole or metaphor, you know, like, all of these Exodus stories, they don't really matter if they really happened in history. What's, what's really important to us as modern-day uh, Westerners with the Bible is to understand the spiritual truth which lies behind it or something like that. Well, that's not what we must do with this, especially when we encounter difficulties. We must affirm the total truthfulness of the Scriptures, but we must also affirm the total truthfulness of what the Scriptures are actually saying. Now, the, the Hebrew word, elif, can mean thousand, as in 600 elif, 600 thousands, but it can also be used as a term for like an inexact cluster of people, oftentimes used to describe like a family clan or even a fighting group of men, like a platoon. So just as easily, this could read 600,000 men, but it could also read 600 military units of men, meaning the total population is more likely in the tens of thousands and rather than the millions. For what it's worth, this would seem to make better sense of the battle of Ai in Joshua 7, when the loss of 36 men is a devastating casualty number. Uh, if your army is 600,000, 36 probably isn't that devastating. But this isn't to minimize at all the size of 20 or 30,000 people leaving Egypt. In ancient times, that is a huge number for a nation. Not to mention that when Jacob's family first came to Egypt to join Joseph, there were only 70 of them. They have increased just exponentially. And not to mention that an entire generation might have been lost when the Hebrew infant boys are thrown into the Nile River. So this still very large contingent of Israel walk out the front door as victors with the, the wealth of Egypt with also some, apparently, some Egyptians along with them, perhaps even others of other nationalities. Verse 38 tells of a mixed multitude, a mixed group of other peoples, not just Israelites, not just Egyptians, but the people are mixed. Beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12, the, the salvation of people from every nation of the world has always been the plan of God, where heaven and earth are reunited as it was 
in Genesis 1 and 2 at creation. This is where the history of Israel is pointing toward, and here in Exodus 12, we see just a small glimmer of what is to come and where this story is going of worshipers from all nations coming out to worship Yahweh. God's people are delivered. They are redeemed. They are saved. But they are sent out. They are, more literally, they are pushed out by the Egyptians. So like in the time of their fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, Israel is now a people, a nation without a land. They are wanderers. They are sojourners. They are a people without a home. And we will have weeks and weeks to further consider that theme together. But this is the beginning. A people on the move. A people without a home. A people moving to a greater home. So they're done packing the bags. They are sent out or pushed out. But now as they're leaving, God gives them some instructions. Some traveling instructions and some even some new institutions of the feasts and rituals that they are to remember now annually for the rest of their history. The two uh, feasts and remembrance festivals of Passover and of unleavened bread. So secondly now, on the way out. So the first thing that God institutes and begins is the future remembrance of the Passover, of what just happened. So God is saying, the Passover has just happened. You are now being pushed out. And so now what we're going to do is I'm going to set up something for you to remember annually to always remember what just happened, perhaps even the night before. So in verse 43, we read, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So we already spent some time considering circumcision in the very strange uh, event that happened in Exodus 4 where God came and almost killed Moses until uh, he, sat, or he circumcised his own firstborn son. I'll just remind you though, maybe you can go find that sermon online if uh, you, you, wanna, you still have more questions about what circumcision is doing and all of that, but I'll just remind you now that circumcision is the means through which God uh, identifies and marks off his people. Marks off, in, in, in this time, the physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to mark them off in faith as his people. They would differentiate themselves. They would distinguish themselves from the nations, those who were not in saving covenant with God, by this boundary marker. This is why it is so important that no foreigner or no stranger partake in the Passover remembrance until that person is circumcised, until that person responds in such faith uh, that he would obey the Lord's command for him or his family, his people, as well as to declare to Israel and to the world that their new and primary identity is not as an Egyptian. Their new and primary identity is not as a Canaanite or an Amorite or an Ammonite or whatever the people is. Their new and primary identity belongs to God and to his people. They are now saying, I am an Israelite. 
They have bound themselves to Yahweh and to his people in a very serious way. And now, the history of Israel, the history of redemption through blood, of life through death, the history of the Passover becomes their Passover. Think about this. Like, in a uh, hundred years later, 500 years later, some Ammonite or some Babylonian decides that he wants to become part of the nation of Israel, bind themselves to their God. They're saying that even though I am not of your people, even though my people were not in Egypt, your history of the Passover is now my history. The foreigner can then remember and reflect on what God has done as if God has done it for him, for his people to which he now really belongs. Now next week we're going to get through God separating the sea, but I think I've decided the week after that we're going to spend an entire week in Mark's gospel, uh, of Mark's account of the Last Supper. The Passover meal of remembrance, which Jesus then transforms into the Lord's Supper, there's just so much there in how the, new, the Old Testament Passover transforms into the New Testament Lord's Supper and the transition of Old Covenant. There's so much for us to consider and think through, especially uh, in something that we do weekly and with such regularity that I don't want to just skim the surface on that. But for tonight, Jesus is going to show later that the Passover meal is a type of the thing which is to come. Type, meaning like the impression which is left by, like if I had a a sheet of aluminum and I hit it with a hammer, the impression that is left by my hammer is the type. Or think about a typewriter. You you remember these archaic old things. Uh, But each, each letter had a hammer with a letter attached to it. And when the hammer hit the piece of paper, it left an impression. What you see, the letter K or something on the piece of paper, is not the hammer. It sure looks like it. The impression left on an aluminum sheet is not the hammer. I can get a pretty good idea of what the hammer looks like by looking at the impression, but it is not the hammer. In the same way, I can get an idea of what you might look like by looking at your shadow, but I don't know you. You are the substance, and the shadow, your shadow, is the shadow, is the type. In the same way, The Passover was always a type, pointing forward, pointing forward to a greater Passover. Now, one implication of all this, about the circumcision and Passover and all that, Exodus 12, among many other places, is one reason why we so repetitively, and perhaps even, you might think, exclusively, uh, make clear every week that the Lord's Supper is for those who have been baptized. Circumcision has a clear connection to baptism as the new external marker for God's people in the new covenant. Check Colossians 2 for Paul's arguments there. But even though there was a mixed multitude of God's people who are leaving Egypt with Israel, none of those foreigners were to eat the Passover meal until they had taken on the external marker of declaration of belonging to God and his people, of responding in faith. Then, and only then, The Passover is for all who would eat of it in remembrance, but there is an order to what's going on here. There is faith that works itself out in public declaration, and then and only then are the people to take on the history of Israel. So just as some Canaanite may need to wait for next year's Passover until he is circumcised, it may sound exclusive, but you ought to wait to take the Lord's Supper until you have publicly declared in your responsive faith of what God has done to save you. 
But just like we often say, and just as Ryan said last week, if the table is not for you tonight, Christ is. Come to him in faith. Begin to talk to us about what it might look like to be baptized, to, be, to declare yourself part of him and part of his people, and then, and only then, take the remembrance meal of belonging. So, thinking through the shadowy Passover and then the very real Passover that is to come, the gospel writers do not want us to miss the language and descriptions of the Passover that are here in Exodus 12. We already thought through last week about how the lamb must be without blemish, but verse 46 further explains that the people are not to break any of the lamb's bones. In the dressing and the butchering of this lamb, it's actually kind of hard to finish the job fully and completely without breaking a bone, especially some of the small ones. But this lamb is to be honored, even in its death, even after its death, protected in because, and honored in because of its life-bringing death. And so the, the Apostle John makes sure to include that bit, that the Romans did not break Jesus' legs. He says, he says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. What scriptures? Well, among others, Exodus 12, 46. That God would see the blood of Christ and pass over the sin of the people. The Passover lamb is a monumentally huge story. But it's kind of just hanging there. It's kind of just suspended in time, waiting to be fulfilled. Waiting as the shadow to find its substance like Peter Pan's shadow or something, waiting to be finally attached to the substance. The Passover prepares us and was intended to prepare Israel for an even greater, greater Passover. We sang, no bleeding bird, no bleeding beast, no hyssop branch, no priest, no running brook, no flood, no sea can wash away this stain from me. None of this could do what God fully intended the Passover to do. All of this was pointing forward to a time in which God's people might be able to say, for only your blood is enough to cover my sin. Only your blood is enough to cover me. As much as the blood of the lamb covered houses and brought temporary Passover, it could not do so forever. But immediately following the Feast of Passover, from now on, Israel is to eat unleavened bread, bread for seven days. After they remember the Feast of Passover, now they are to go a whole week, seven days. You can read about this in verses 3 through 10 of chapter 13. A whole week of eating unleavened bread. And then on the seventh day, there will be a feast to the Lord. They are to remember this as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But all of this is to remember and to teach to teach then future generations how to remember, how to remember what God has done and how he saved, how Israel had to get out of, the, out of there in a hurry. They didn't even have time to leaven their bread. Why? They need to remember. Remember last week. You've already forgotten this, I'm sure. Christianity is a strange combination of amnesia and deja vu. I think I remember forgetting that before. You already forgot that. We are forgetful people. We forget the gospel. We forget what God has done to save and to redeem and to move a people out and end to life with him. And so God is gracious to his people to give them regular reminders, to build in rhythms of grace in their life. But this feast was also to remind Israel of their very hard break from Egypt. Just like we saw last week, 
that this Passover event would mark a new calendar for Israel, one commentator explains it like this. He says, unleavened bread was a symbol of discontinuity. Leaven was a bit of dough kept unbaked from the previous day's baking and added to the next day's batch of dough so that it would start the fermentation process there also. So when you bake bread today on Tuesday or something, you take out a piece of that dough before you bake the bread so that you can have this leavened dough for Wednesday. Um, It was used in much the same way as yeast would be now. When a batch of bread was being baked, a relatively small quantity of leaven or yeast is added, and it works its way through the dough and causes it to rise. The instruction to banish leaven from their houses and to take none of it with them from Egypt was a gesture that symbolized leaving behind all Egyptian influences that that might work their way through their lives and corrupt them. Don't take Tuesday's yeast with you for Wednesday's bread is what is going on here. And so Paul picks up the themes of Passover and unleavened bread in 1 Corinthians 5, where the Corinthian church, there, there's a member of that church who is brazenly and publicly acting in such sexual immorality that even the, the pagans in, in Corinth are appalled by it. And what's making it worse is the Corinthian church is not only okay with it, they're like boasting in it. To put it in Exodus terms, they are free from Egypt, but they are very much still acting as Egyptians, and proudly so. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Live in such a way that is already true of you, Paul says. Christ has removed the leaven. You really are unleavened. He really has freed you from the old self. The old self, the old man, the old woman is put to death. It is dying. But now in your life and in your church with seriousness and with intentionality, remove that which is Egyptian. Remove that of the old self, of the old life, the old way, all the stuff that is not true of the supernatural community that God has now made for you and made you in. Paul is demanding that the church, even in 1 Corinthians 5, implement church discipline. Not that they would never hang out with folks who aren't Christians or even have those folks at their gathered meetings, but that they become clear in who the church is and isn't. That they become clear to that unrepentant sinner, that they become clear to themselves, that they become clear to the world, and that they become clear to God who is the people of God. And so this Feast of Unleavened Bread is to pattern and remind the people of what they are so prone to forget, of what God has done how he has transitioned them from death to life. But before and after the unleavened bread playbook here, we've got some really weird instructions. I skipped verse 1, chapter chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So he says, Consecrate the firstborn of everything, every animal, every child, whatever is born first, consecrate it to me. Set it apart for special use, special service to me. 
But then, after the unleavened bread thing, jump down to verse 11 with what they are supposed to do with these firstborn when they get to the land of Canaan, and then what they are supposed to do with this consecrated firstborn of all future generations. Verse 11 says, when, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. There's lots of parts in Exodus that don't show up in the Charlton Heston movie or in Prince of Egypt. Uh, but this is really good stuff. This is weird stuff, but it's good. So let's see if we can get everything that we just read straight. When God says in verse 12, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Numbers 18 is going to make clear that this means that when the people are to consecrate an animal, a firstborn animal, Numbers 18 makes clear that they are to actually sacrifice this animal. It's a, they are set apart for a blood sacrifice. Just like the firstborn of Egypt, these animals die as a reminder of Passover, but also to remind that God owns all of creation. One other thing. Uh, Clint and I watched a video with Aaron, uh, who you met last week, of, of a sacrifice that he and his family get invited to in North Africa every year. It's a Muslim uh, ritual every year, and, you know, he, it's gory. We, Clint and I just watched it, and Aaron and his small daughters are there watching death and gore. And we were just reflecting, like, you know what? It's gory, but perhaps only startlingly so because we are 21st century Americans. Like, all of human history until like maybe 100 years ago in the West has probably not only seen animals killed, but they've probably killed them themselves. So we've perhaps got a little bit of chronological snobbery going on amongst us in which we say, yes, we are modern and uh, well-thought-out people, uh, and these ancient people are just barbarians, but perhaps that's just because we think all of our steaks and hamburgers are brought to us by the meat fairies or something, in which no animal was actually killed. Anyway, digression. Where was I? Uh, yeah. One exception, there is an exception to all of the firstborn animals that are to be consecrated, set apart for special service, and then sacrificed to God. There is one exception, and that is the donkey. Uh, the donkey is not, what? Uh, apparently donkeys are voiced by Eddie Murphy, as Balaam's donkey shows us. Uh, okay, full of digressions. Shrek, that's from Shrek is what I'm talking about. Uh, there's one exception to the sacrificial death of the firstborn animal, and that is a donkey. Just like every other living firstborn creature, the firstborn donkey belongs to God, but a donkey is ceremonially unclean. But unlike pigs and other animals, pigs cannot be even amongst the people, much less eaten, but you can't have a pet pig or like walking around with the people. They are not service animals. Donkeys can be. They can be used as pack animals in Israel. But uh, they're ceremonially unclean, and yet every firstborn animal is to die, is to be consecrated to the Lord. So if a donkey, a firstborn donkey, is to be consecrated to the Lord and yet can't be sacrificed, what's an Israelite to do? 
Well, they've got a couple of options. The first option that verse 13 makes clear is you could just break the donkey's neck. Sounds like a good choice. You could kill it and leave it on the side of the road. Sorry, donkey. Uh, The second option is the same option of the firstborn in Egypt. The donkey could live if an offering of a sacrificial lamb was instead offered as its substitute. Israel could redeem the donkey with a lamb. And remember, like we thought through a few weeks ago, to redeem means to purchase, to buy back, to claim. So the price of redemption for the firstborn donkey is the blood of a lamb. But then the instructions take a real hard turn. Let's read verse 13 again. Uh, Every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So what we just read is, is that firstborn sons fall in the same category as donkeys. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem in the same way. Well, over and over again, God will remind Israel that they are chosen, that they are set apart for his service, that they're a set-apart nation. The entire nation is consecrated to service to God. Here, with the firstborn sons of Israel acting as the, the bearers of the family name, the representatives of the family, here, God puts the firstborn sons right along the unclean donkeys. They are unclean. Just as we sung, and only your blood is enough. Who can save me from this sin? I'm helpless. And the the sons of Israel, the people of Israel, are helpless to redeem themselves. God is showing the entire nation through the firstborn sons that they were still an unclean people in need of redemption, even though they have already been redeemed. They have been redeemed out of Egypt, and yet they still need more redemption. They would be bought back for service to the Lord through the bloody substitutionary death of a lamb in their place, which is exactly what Paul tells Titus that Christ has done. Paul says in Titus, he gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us back from all lawlessness. And as we thought through in the circumcision of the firstborn passage in chapter 4, God does not demand anything that he is not first uh, willing to give of himself. The the way of life for the rest of God's children would be through the death of his own firstborn son. But Numbers 18 further explains that parents are also to redeem the firstborn sons with five shekels of silver to be paid at the temple, which is exactly what Mary and Joseph are doing with Jesus in Luke 2. Luke tells us, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This is Exodus 13 stuff. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the firstborn to open the womb of Mary, and so he is set apart for consecrated service to God, even though he certainly needs no redemption. But just like Passover and unleavened bread, this consecration ceremony has a teaching function. Beginning in verse 14, this is the same wording that that God gives to Israel in the Passover remembrance and in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a teaching function. In verse 14, and when in time, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord, Yahweh, brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord, Yahweh, killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, 
I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So hold up, some adolescent young boy might say later on in life as he's watching this event happen in, among, amongst other families. Like when I was a baby, you dedicated me to God. You consecrated me to special service to the Lord. Yes, but in order for me to remain alive, you had to kill a lamb just like our neighbor just did, that I might live and live in consecrated service to God? Yes, blood, death, so that you might live. This had to have had an effect on the young men of Israel, that they were set apart for God, that they belonged to him for his service. But if you know the story, you know that it must have had not, not had that much of a lasting effect. What the unclean people of the world needed was a better lamb with better blood. Because here's something interesting about the Exodus story. You might be surprised, but the word free or the word freedom does not appear in Exodus, apart from what an Israelite is to do with his or her own slave in Exodus chapter 21. We think of Exodus as a story of freedom, and it is, but not just that. The Exodus story isn't just about getting freed from the tyranny of sin, being set free from judgment by the blood of the Lamb. The Exodus story is about consecration. Time and again, God, through Moses, told Pharaoh to let the people go. Why? Why does Moses, over and over and over again, say, let my people go, so they might serve me, Yahweh says to Pharaoh. He's not saying, let them go, so they may be free from slavery, but then they're just going to wander around a bit and just figure out what they think might be best for their life. They will wander, but because of disobedience. God frees them to serve him. Like Road trips are going somewhere. God does not save Israel, and he has not saved us to just drive around without a map. There's a destination, and the drive along the way as travelers is what actually shapes us which is exactly what Paul is getting after in Romans 6. Paul says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Paul is saying the Israelites did not cease to be slaves. They're just now slaves of a good and better master of one who is for their joy and for their freedom. Just like Israel, all of us are slaves to someone or something. We are all slaves to either sin and death or slaves to obedience and righteousness. Now, when we get to the law, we'll keep thinking about this, but the order there is extremely important, isn't it? God redeems the people in Egypt and then saves them to a life of obedience. He did not scour the earth looking for an obedient people and finds one obediently loving him in Egypt and then decides to save them. No, he saves them that they might obey. They don't obey so that he might save them. So Paul is not saying in Romans 6 that obedience is what saves you, but that as sons and daughters of God, with all the freedom that the redemption of the cross and the promises of inheritance now bring, now live as the unleavened bread that you are. 
Live as consecrated sons and daughters. Live as set-apart ones. Christchurch, you are, you are temple workers. You are set apart for his worship, his worship in your homes. You are set apart for his worship in your jobs. You are set apart for his worship in your leisure and your relaxation. You do not belong to yourself, but you were bought with a price. You now belong body and soul, consecrated for God's service and worship in what you watch on TV, in how you use your phone or your laptop, how you speak to, how you respond to your boss or your neighbor or your spouse or your children, how you serve them, how you care for them. You also belong to his people, seeking to serve and care for their well-being over your own. You're consecrated to service in how you live amongst the unbelieving nations around you, how you speak to the glory of the God who redeemed you, who bought you, who saved you, and now the freedom that he has brought you in his service. None of this, that God might save you or deliver you, you don't do all those things that you might be saved, but for those who are trusting in the blood of the Passover lamb, because he already has. And so now we receive all the benefits of Christ the firstborn, or as Hebrews 12, 23 calls us, this is what the author of Hebrews calls the church. He calls us the assembly, the church of the firstborn. That's great. We are the church of the firstborn, the one who has made us not just slaves of God in consecrated yet joyful service to him, but in the new covenant of Christ, he has made us his very sons and daughters. We, the, the younger brothers and sisters of our firstborn oldest brother Jesus, who has now given us the name of the family, the honor of the family, and all of the benefits of inheritance. I'll, I'll close us with a story from the the wonderful Garrison Keeler. If you ever listened on Saturday mornings to the Prairie Home Companion on NPR, I read of an old story from Phil Riken's Exodus commentary where Keeler tells the story of a hardlock uh, family in Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, the setting of every one of his stories. And there's a, a nice young Swedish girl who meets and then runs off with a young Scotsman, a stranger by the name of Campbell, and they have, they have three children together. But eventually, this Scotsman, he, he, he leaves the family, and she is left destitute. She has to return home, finds an old trailer to live in where the family now lives on uh, the provision of family and friends to just survive. This family, though, they're always dreaming of a better life. But then one day, as they're dreaming in destitution, they get a letter from someone asking about their family asking about the heritage of their family, asking about the connection to the Campbells. Shortly thereafter, they receive a second letter, this time telling them that the children are direct descendants from the house of Stuart, the house, of the, the royal line from Scotland. And they are heirs to this royal family, this destitute family with nothing they are now finding out that they are heirs. The letter closes with these words to the firstborn son. He says, the letter says, I won't read it in a Scottish accent to save you, but he says, your royal highness, discovering you and your family has been the happiest accomplishment of my life. And if God in his infinite wisdom should deny me the opportunity to meet you face to face on this earth, 
I should still count myself the luckiest of men for this chance, however small, to restore Scotland to her former greatness. Please know that you are in my thoughts and prayers every day. This is a young boy in Minnesota who lives in a trailer without a father. Here's some royal duke or someone in Scotland saying, please know that you are in my prayers and thoughts every day and that I will work with every ounce of my being to restore you from your sad exile to the lands, the goods, and the reverence to which you, by the will of God, are entitled. Christian Riken then concludes, we too have received a message from a faraway land, assuring us that by virtue of our redemption in Christ, we belong to the royal house of God. Jesus has a plan to elevate us even to his greatness as his creation and yet sharing in his inheritance. We are in his thoughts and prayers every day as he prays for us and advocates for us even now before the Father. And he is working with every ounce of his being to restore to us or restore us from our sad exile to the glory which we are entitled by the grace of God. If that is true, and it is, if that is true, another Scotsman, Robert Murray McShane, says if we only knew of how Jesus is praying for us, how confidently might we go about our days. And he is. This is not something that we need to imagine. How might that shape inform you this week? As redeemed children of God, through the substitutionary work of the great Passover lamb, he has set you apart for himself, that you might live and serve him with joy, and that we might all grow and live in this vocation of service to the Lord as his temple workers, consecrated to his service forever in joy. Let's pray that that might be true. Oh God, we thank you. Oh God, how deep, how wide, how vast your love is for us, that you, the, the God and creator of the universe, would call us would know us, would redeem us by name, even more that we would make, that you would make us your very sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you would give of yourself, that you would offer yourself without blemish to the Father on our behalf as our great and final Passover lamb, bringing us from death to life. Holy Spirit, help us to live in light of our freedom. Help us act and react each moment of our life in consecrated worship in the joy of redemption, and the freedom of obedience, so that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we might do it all for the glory of God who has saved us. We pray all these things in Christ's atoning work, his substitutionary and covering and transforming work of his death on the cross for us. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.